Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Nehemiah 6, further opposition to the rebuilding. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. But by night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realised that God had sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of, the, because of what they have done. Remember also the, the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son, Jehoahan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Amy, thank you very much indeed for doing that. Uh, much appreciated. And actually, thank you to everyone else who over the last few weeks has been uh, reading these very chunky uh, pieces of scripture as we've worked our way through uh, Nehemiah. I think that probably uh, Pete's effort a few weeks ago in chapter three will go down the 
for generations, really, as uh, a massive effort with all of those names. And uh, I was given chapter six and chapter seven. If you skip over in your Bible uh, to chapter seven, you'll actually see there are a whole other list of names and numbers. Um, I'm sorry if you're hoping to get more out of those numbers, but I'm not going to give you a whole lot today. But uh, I'm sure there's some value in there. Uh, but also just to reiterate Claire's welcome from earlier on, uh, just to say it's great to have you with us, particularly if you're new. Uh, if you're new around here, welcome. We want you to feel at home. Obviously you are at home, but I hope that being part of us, being with us today uh, will encourage you. And if you are new, uh, Claire said there will be some details that appear on the screen a bit later. It'd be great to uh, keep in touch with you um, as we go along. I'm sure you will have noticed uh, that there are lots of books and movies and things like that which use this classic storyline. It goes something like this, that you get a person or a group of people who are given a task to accomplish, and it, it usually involves saving the world, um, but they face opposition uh, from all sides. So a good example of that would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, now, this is a series of books, uh, if you've never come across it before, uh, that later became a series of movies, uh, something which my wife Claire loves greatly. She's really into it. For me personally, uh, really, I think there's a whole load of hours there that you can't have again uh, if you spend time reading that or looking at those movies. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a very well-known popular story. Uh, basically, the way it goes is you have this very odd, slightly mixed up group of people who are given a task to accomplish. And their task is to carry a ring uh, to a faraway place and destroy it. And they face serious opposition, really from all fronts, from trees that try to swallow them up to dark lords riding on horses, some crazy kind of multi-limbed creatures, and uh, there are things like orcs and trolls, and a thing called a balrog, if you've ever heard of that. There are some more orcs, some, some evil wizards, a, a giant spider, uh, and then there's some more orcs. You, you get the general picture, I think. But behind all of that, uh, with each character, inside each character, each member of the group of heroes, you have these their own fears, their own weaknesses, uh, their own concerns and anxieties, which seem to conspire against them, to oppose them uh, in completing that task. But we love it, don't we, at the end, uh, that the unlikely hero does succeed. Now, what we've seen as we've spent time looking at the story of Nehemiah is a man who God has taken hold of. God has called him. God has filled him with compassion and sent him uh, on a mission. And in, in, in this case, to go and restore the walls of Jerusalem. And we pick up the story this morning at the most crucial phase of the work. We are approaching, we reach completion of that work. Nehemiah has made incredible sacrifices. He's taken significant risks in order to fulfill and pursue the vision that God had placed in his heart. But he's not just a great example to us, he's actually a foreshadowing of the future. I think we'd all agree that, that Nehemiah was a foreshadowing of Jesus. He showed us something of who Jesus would be. Now because it speaks of who Jesus would be, 
it also speaks of all of us too, all of those who have become part of God's family, you and I, now the people of God. God has taken hold of us. He's given us compassion. Jesus himself has set us on a mission. We are now his ambassadors. And if we were able to pan back and see the whole story of eternity, what we would see is that right now we are also nearing the end. We are approaching completion. That's the age that we live in. There's one particular similarity between Nehemiah then and us today that I want us to get to grips with this morning. Nehemiah faced opposition to the work that God had given him. We also face opposition in the kingdom building work that God has given to us. Opposition, if you like, is part of the deal. Now, if no one's ever told you that before, then what well, I'm telling you now, if we were to quote a great man, John Piper, amazing theologian, author, church leader, pastor of our time, John Piper would say this, life is war. Well, to quote him more fully, until you know that life is war, you cannot know what life is for. If you ever feel like every time you go to pray for a sick person or you stand up for justice, go to encourage a friend, you just open your Bible or turn up for a Zoom gathering like this one this morning, whenever you feel like you do those things, that there is something that's distracting you, something that's getting in the way, that you're being questioned about it, it's things that are being obstructive. And the truth is, you've faced opposition. That is the nature of war. Now, opposition comes to us in a variety of ways. Nehemiah himself, he faced opposition in, in, in different ways during his life and during this whole experience. But what we're going to do today, really for the sake of time, is I'm going to pick out one big rock. And I'm trusting Jesus that in the course of our time together this morning, that, that numbers of you who are tuned in a part of this gathering today, we're going to conquer uh, this form of opposition. Let's just remind ourselves for a moment of what it said in the, in the chapter that Amy just read for us. In chapter 6 of Nehemiah, verse 9, it says, they were just trying to frighten us. In verse 10, there's the threat. They are coming to kill you. In verse 13, he had been hired to intimidate me. Fear is a powerful form of opposition. And Nehemiah had bucket loads of it thrown at him. I'm pulling it out today with the intention that we take it apart, that it's grip and its influence in your life and in my life will be squashed. Now, there's something I want to be clear about here. When I talk about fear, when I refer to fear, I'm not talking about that kind of inbuilt form of common sense that says, I'm standing at the top of a 50 meter cliff, don't take another step, or that's fire, don't touch it. What I'm talking about today is the kind of fear that opposes the exploits that Jesus has predetermined for you. The opportunities to advance the spread 
of the kingdom. We're targeting those fears that determine our life choices negatively. They control our behaviour. Before we go any further, I want to just reflect very briefly on two things that some other people have said about this. The first thing I want to reflect on is something that Jesus said about fear. In Luke chapter 12, he said to his disciples in verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. What Jesus is saying there is that so pleased is the father that the kingdom will be manifest, it will be expressed and built through us that we have no reason to fear. The other person I'm going to quote is Becky Kenyon. Two weeks ago, during our time together on a Sunday morning, Becky shared a prophetic word with us. And she felt like God wanted to say to us that we should not, that we should serve, that we should serve without fear, that we should not fear being taken granted of, that we should uh, bring this to Jesus in prayer, that we should lay down our lives, or that we should know life. The thrust of what Becky shared with us was that we should serve without fear, that we should pursue, to put it into other words, we pursue the kingdom, we pursue everything that Jesus has given to us without fear. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, this morning, as we come before you, living in this most unusual of seasons together as your people, that we know that we haven't lost sight, we still see everything that you've set out for us in the future, we look at immediate circumstances and we wonder what's going on. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would know peace from you in this season, that we would conquer fear, that we would not allow it to oppose us to the point where we're not able to pursue everything you've given to us. Jesus, we want to be a people who serve without fear. So what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want to look at two strategies that Nehemiah employed, and so Nehemiah gives us an example of how these two things can work out to tackle fear. The first and just the shortest of those is that we name it. Now we've already started to do this really, to name fear, we call it what it is, because fear is a shapeshifter, okay? So it takes on different forms, but regardless of which form it chooses, we should still call fear by its name. We call it out, we expose it when we name it. Because that which has been exposed is far easier to contend with. An invisible enemy is very hard to fight. We shine a light on it, we bring it into view. It's like switching the light on in a dark room. And what I want for us this morning is that we should expose fear because that curtails its power by bringing it into view those expressions of itself that affect us the most. If today you can name the fear, you begin to limit its power. One of the things that Nehemiah had to handle was intimidation. It repeats itself time and again, doesn't it? If we look through this story, time and again faces opposition in the form of intimidation. Sanballat and Tobiah repeatedly, repeatedly ask him to go and meet them in a remote place. That was intimidation. They sent an open letter, which basically means that its contents could have been read by anybody that the aide carrying it chose to show it to. 
which almost certainly means that in turn, its contents will have got back to the king of the most powerful empire on the planet. And the claims in that letter are that Nehemiah was seeking to make himself king. They also tried to pressurise him into entering the temple unlawfully. They sent prophets to make declarations, to intimidate him. And that's just this chapter. If you skip back a couple of pages, you find mocking, you find threats of violence. But intimidation, you know, there's really only one strategy to exploit or develop fear. What about lies and accusation? We'll talk a bit more in a few minutes about how fear is very closely related to control. But I want to share with you an example of, of how lying and fear and control all connect together. Some years ago, um, I had a job where I supplied, uh, I worked for a business supplying fittings for furniture companies, people who made doors and windows and all sorts of things, whatever it might be. Now, some of what we made was made in our factory uh, down there in the black country. Um, now, I'd worked there for some years, and so I knew the guys in the factory quite well, really. I got on very well with them. And if we had a customer come to us with a bit of a problem and needed help with something, I could go and chat with the guys in the factory and, and we could make a plan, really, together to, to solve the problem. But there was a lady who worked uh, in this business, who, who basically, her goal was that she wanted to control everything. She wanted to accumulate power and then dominate uh, everybody else. So when she discovered that I was working with my colleagues to solve problems, I mean, you know, what was I thinking? Um, without reference to her, she would tell lies to the person I worked for, to my manager, and the intention of that was to stimulate fear. Basically, the logic goes, if I make you fearful of me, I can control you. So when he came to me, my manager, to repeat the lies and the accusations, I have to call it out. I have to name it and say, that's not true. I will not allow a lie to cultivate fear, so I expose it for what it is. What about the fear of rejection? You know, in Nehemiah's example, it's huge. Fear that results from rejection or fear of being rejected. Look at Nehemiah back in chapter two. He goes to the king with his request, very much afraid, he says. What about the fear of failure? What if it doesn't work? What if the other tribes don't want to get involved? They have nothing to do with this great project. What if, I, what if I get it wrong? What about other people? Fear of other people. What if they, what will they think of me? What about the fear of poverty? If I give this up or I give this away, will I still be able to pay for that holiday or replace my car? Now, I think for a lot of people right now, this particular fear is huge. I think that if, if it's not you, then you will know people who right now, today, will be living with a fear that, you know, what happens if I lose my job? What, what will happen? This is real stuff. But the fear of COVID, you know, if I go there or I do this, will I get the virus? Will I be okay? The key here is that if you have a fear and you can name it, you say it out loud, 
what happens is you begin to limit its power over you. And once you've done that, you move on to the second strategy. So the first strategy is you name it. The second strategy is you switch it. What I'm saying is that we need to exchange fear of whatever it is that we would name, and we exchange it for fear of God. Now, when I say exchange fear of, and it might be you know, fear of man or fear of rejection, and you, you switch that for a fear of God, let's just be clear about what fearing God is. It's very simple. It's living the way the Father wants us to live. The Bible puts some names to that. The Bible talks about us being slaves to righteousness. It talks about us being disciplined by the Lord because he loves us. It says that we are chastened by him as his children. See, the correct fear of God is actually an affirmation of our identity. It confirms who we are. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, says that we work out our salvation, we exercise our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So as much as you might refer to yourself as a Christian or, or better still a follower of Jesus, you can and you should also refer to yourself as a God-fearer. Now, Nehemiah did this in two ways. So the first thing he did was he, he lent into or he drew down on what God had already given him. So in Nehemiah, we have a man who has cultivated a relationship with the father. Look back to chapter one. At the very start, he heard the story of Jerusalem. He was moved with compassion and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed for some days. That kind of activity, it, it sets right the compass of our lives. If, if you've never spent any time fasting, I, I'd encourage you to give it a go. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I rarely fast. But what I can tell you is that it will focus your attention, it will focus your affections, it will focus your body towards the Father. Now, for us, this is all quite amazing. The story of Nehemiah is quite amazing because we are gifted our relationship with God through Jesus. Nehemiah didn't have that privilege. His way to God was the law. Even with that hurdle, he lived in a place of relationship that meant when the opposition came, when the fear came, so did wisdom and boldness. If you look back to last week in chapter five, you, you start to see, you see a little bit of how important this was to Nehemiah chapter five. When he dealt with the nobles, you remember that he challenges them to walk in fear of God as to avoid reproach. Then in verse 15 of chapter 5, he says, out of reverence, that is fear of God, he did not act like the earlier governors. Nehemiah's overriding attitude, his whole approach to life was to walk right with Yahweh. What he does 
is he digs a deep well of godly outlook in his, in his own life. And then you see how he responds. When that invitation comes, that will certainly lead to his death, out in the middle of nowhere. Why should the work stop, he says, while I leave it and go down with you? Or he handles the open letter of threat. You know, the threat says, this report will get back to the king. And he says, you're making it up out of your head. That comes out of a reservoir, out of a deep well of godly outlook. It's like there is this deep, deep reservoir in his, in his heart of insight, of courage that's developed as Nehemiah has cultivated his relationship with the Father so that, so that when the moment comes, he can draw from it. He has lived in the fear of the Lord. He has lived the way that God wanted him to live. And he's following Paul's instructions in Philippians 2, hundreds of years before they were even written, the purposes of God will be fulfilled as a result of a life submitted to the Father. I'll just say that again, because I think this is key. The purposes of God will be fulfilled as a result of a life lived in submission to the Father. Let's be a people who cultivate that relationship. The second thing he does here in this, in this strategy is he prays prayers of dependence. Living in fear of God means that we depend on the Father. Just look at Nehemiah's story so far. In chapter 2, uh, the king asks Nehemiah, what do you want? What does he do? He prays. In chapter 4, Tobiah mocks their work. What does he do? He prays. In, in this chapter, he's accused of, of weakness and, and not being able to finish. What does he do? He prays. Prayer is the primary way by which we declare and affirm our dependence on God. It's the realm in which we confess our inability and we rely upon his ability. Now this all comes down to the reality that fear enters our lives as the result of our desire to control. It's all too common that even as dedicated followers of Jesus, that we allow this kind of inbuilt desire to control our lives, to overtake our thinking and our actions. What happens is that we persuade ourselves that we know what is best, that we know the right course of action, that if we don't do something about this, then who will? We actually lose sight of the fact that our Father in heaven is more than able to provide and to protect and to lead and to help us and to support us. Because we lose sight of that, then what happens is we, we, we end up looking to ourselves to, to basically take on the role of Jesus. But, but of course we can't do that. We're not strong enough. We're not wise enough. We're not patient enough. And so fear starts to creep in. The questions, the what if questions start to take over. Because when trust leaves, fear arrives. We need to stop trying to control the world around us 
and throw ourselves into the mercy and kindness of our Father. We place our dependence through prayer on him. Our trust is in him. Let me tell you about the most stressful day of my life so far. As a family, we were living in a third world African country. And our intention was, as a result of God speaking to us, that we were going to live there for the rest of our lives. So because of that, what we've done is we packed all of our worldly possessions into a 20 foot shipping container, big metal box. And our furniture was there, Hannah and Sophie's toys were there, our books, all our household equipment was all packed into this thing. Now to keep a long story short, and I'll, and I'll gladly give you the, the long version another time, the time finally came for us to import all of this stuff uh, to furnish our new home. However, these things are complicated and involving essentially the equivalent of the border agency, uh, HM Revenue and Customs, Department for Business, you've got a freight company. And what happens is I ended up with a, a very narrow window uh, to complete this process. And in the midst of it all, <clears throat> kind of running around, getting documents agreed and stamped, I may, I just may, have gone through a red light, okay? Now, I'm not convinced I did, but the police officer who stopped me, he was quite sure. So I tried to explain the situation to him, but he wasn't really very interested. Uh, in fact, he wanted to accompany me to the police station in my car. But I didn't really have time for this. I was stressed. So here I am in this very stressed out situation, trying to control all of this stuff and get a job done. And this guy wants me to go to the police station with him. <laughs> what do I do? Do I stop and pray and seek peace and rely on God's perfect timing? Do I trust him that he will guard this container load of possessions? I know it's just stuff at the end of the day, but do I trust him for that? Do I calmly do as the police officer asks me and go and fill out all the forms and I pay the allotted fine? I show grace and kindness as I go along. What do you think? I've been a Christian for quite a long time. I was brought up in a good Christian home. Never been in trouble with anyone, really. I'll tell you the truth. <clears throat> I paid him a bribe. My efforts to control the situation had led to a deep fear that it was all going to go horribly wrong, that I would fail Claire and Hannah and Sophie, who were excited about getting their hands on things they had not seen or played with or been able to use for about 15 months. You see, on that occasion, trust had left, fear had arrived. What I needed in that moment was a deeper well. I needed to depend on him and not myself. I needed to call out what was happening, to switch from fearing, which is trusting. I needed to switch from fear to fear of God, which is to trust the Father to complete the work. You see, the big change for many of us is that we need to move from a place where we feel that we should or that we want to control the world around us. 
and we move to a place where our lives and all that's in our lives rest in our Father, that we fear him. Nehemiah knew just how important all of this was to the plans for Jerusalem to be restored. And we're not going to spend any real time looking at, at chapter 7 as I kind of quipped about earlier on, you can flick the page and read a list of names and numbers. But basically, right at the start of the chapter, you see again Nehemiah's attitude because he appoints two people to run Jerusalem, to be in charge of the city. One is a guy called Hananiah, who's his brother, and another guy called Hananiah. And what Nehemiah does is he points out that Hananiah feared God more than most people do. I want to encourage us. Let's be people like that. Let's live the way that the Father wants us to live because that is what it means to fear the Lord. Our freedom from fear comes in the form of our submission to him. Our willingness to set aside our own ideas of what is best to depend upon the one who is entirely dependable. See, I have a saviour who has won for me freedom from fear by giving me access to his love. He has made the greatest exchange, the biggest switch that there ever was, was for Jesus to put himself in our place. And he has called me out. He has named me. So I want to encourage you, this morning, the way to get free from fear is to dig deep wells of experience and knowledge of your father. Because when you're on the field of battle, and I, and I know you are, I know that you will be, and opposition is fierce, and fear will mount up. What we need at that moment is the presence to call out fear for what it is and to switch it, because that is where victory comes through. I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I just thank you right now that actually the access that we have to you is completely free. It's what Jesus has given us. It's Jesus has given us a way by which we can live in this incredible relationship with you, the creator, the maker of all things, wonderfully powerful, completely supreme. We trust you, Jesus. And we step in to following you, being dependent upon you. You help us now as we come to worship you again, Jesus, that we would know you and experience you digging a deeper well of knowledge, cultivating that relationship that we would be those who conquer, that are victorious on this great battle that you've engaged us in. In the name of Jesus.